The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by LCHF Endurance. Stabilize your blood sugar, burn fat, decrease inflammation and become fat adapted in just 12 weeks. I'm so excited to share with you that LCHF Endurance is currently 50% off for a limited time only. Simply use the code LCHFE50 to sample the program, check out the kind of meals you'll get to eat, and cancel within seven days if it's not your sugar-free jam. Head to lchfendurance.com.au and use the code LCHFE50 for 50% off your upfront program payment today. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Cindy O'Meara, nutritionist, best-selling author, international speaker, and founder of Changing Habits. In today's episode, Cindy and I explore lignans and plants more specifically and what has happened to our tolerance levels following the increased use of antibiotics and herbicides and therefore a disrupted microbiome. We speak about glyphosate and the Australian court cases that have been announced this year, the carnivore diet and longer-term gut health, and all about functional nutrition and how you can learn more to change your health and maybe even your career. Hi, Cindy, and welcome back to the show. Thanks, Steph. Looking forward to this hour. Oh, me too. I really wanted to talk to you about lignans because it's quite an interesting topic and one I definitely see a lot more conversation about in the health and wellness space. Um, But just to set the scene... Let's start with a bit of a conversation about lignans um, and what they are. Yeah, sure. So lignans are in plants. Mm -hmm. Um, They're often called isoflavins or phytoestrogens. Mm -hmm. Um, They are used by our bacteria in our gut to produce um, compounds like things called enterolactin and enterodial. I won't go into all of those, but... They're used for that and they're good for clearing estrogen or, um, you know, going into the receptors of estrogen. So we've eaten them throughout history. We've never had problems with them. Um, There was discussion, I seem to remember it decades ago, the discussion on on phytoestrogens and 
um, and how they affect our hormones, and especially female hormones being anti-estrogenic. Um, so, yeah, they're in food, and they're mainly in plant foods. So they're in fruits, vegetables, nuts, grains, seeds, uh, and they're, they're something that um, we have always dealt with and we've always had. But I think the problem with them at the moment is that our microbiome isn't working as well as it should because of many factors, diet, um, too many antibiotics, um, the use of herbicides that are, have antibiotic properties and that are in our foods all cause a destruction of the microbiome. Therefore, uh, if we aren't, haven't got a microbiome that can convert the lignans to these wonderful things that help in our biochemistry, then I believe they can become problems. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really important point to break down because I think you'll agree in that looking at the lignans by themselves is looking at the tip of the iceberg. Whereas if we take that deeper dive to understand maybe why we're reacting to some of these plants or nuts or seeds um, or grains, and then look at the microbiome more closely, then we're going root cause, yeah? Yeah, most definitely. So if you, if you look in the literature, there, there's a lot, but it's always talking about dysbiosis. So there was one that I looked at um, online um, that talked about breast cancer and lignans, mm. but they, they always brought up dysbiosis. So this was back in 2013, and then there was another article that I was looking at um, recently, which was a review in 2018 um, about lignans and um, breast cancer. So it seems to have a um, either is it one way or the other, and it seems to be more if there's no dysbiosis, then it protects against breast cancer and the lignans. Mm -hmm. But I, I like to look holistically. I never like to look at one thing, and and I find we live in a very mechanistic world, and our mechanistic world is let's pinpoint one thing. And let's make it either good or bad um, for the human being. And we, we've done it with food where we have looked at food for its um, mechanistic properties as opposed to its vitalistic properties. So lignans are never around by themselves. And, and what I find is that, that drug companies want it to be mechanistic. They look at something and they go, oh, this is what causes this. If we extract it and we put it in a pill and we add it to a, some chemicals, then, um, you know, this is going to be the result. But when we look at our anthropological history and our vitalistic as opposed, opposed to mechanism, then, you know, they work synchronistically together and they have for eons um, throughout the generations without them being a problem. So, yeah, I'm a little bit, a little bit, but when I, when I see these studies come up and I see, you know, we've picked out another thing, so... You know, we picked out gluten, we picked out lectins, we picked out lignans, we picked out um, all of these things, antioxidants, and then we make up these, you know, these um, drugs or supplements and that's when I think we get into trouble. Yeah, I, I do agree. And I think also the issue that we're seeing at the moment is, yeah, these broad sweeping statements that are quite... Um, insular in their focus, so broad in that they we are you know applying a statement to everybody regardless of their gut health mm. and um, you know the bio individuality element. And I wanted to actually take a sidestep just quickly to bring in the conversation around the carnivore diet because one of the reasons that we hear 
about the carnivore diet being useful is because it takes away the plant-based compounds like lectins, but we're actually also really looking at it from the lignans, the gluten, the phytic acid, and any of the self-protective substances that um, the proponents of the carnivore diet believe aren't suitable to humans. I wanted to get your thoughts on the carnivore diet because I see that being extrapolated to everybody when really it looks like those that are really needing to maybe reduce or eliminate things like lectins and lignans are those with, yeah, the dysbiosis and that deeper gut health work to do. What do you think? Yeah, look, we have a decimation of the microbiome. So I love Dr. Natasha Campbell-McBride. She's written a book called Vegetarianism Explained. Mm -hmm. And in that book, she says, meat and dairy and animal fats feed the human body. Plants feed the microbiome. So when you look at it like that, you, you have to uh, you know, make the decision on, well, if I am a carnivore, then I'm going to decimate the microbiome. But are you going to decimate the microbiome that's in dysbiosis and then recolonate it? Mm. So let, let's have a look at history. If we look at um, cultures that still exist around the world and then we look at the people in, in extreme climates, and extreme climates mean that deserts or high altitudes with lots of snow, there's not a lot of plant life that we can eat. So if we're a culture like Himbas in Namibia or the Kyrgyz in Crimea, which is the highlands of um, Afghanistan, if we have a look at those two extremes, they eat nothing but meat and, and dairy. But when the summer comes or the rains come, depending on where they are, the plants will grow and they will know the plants that they're to consume. So while they live on meat and dairy for a majority of their time because their winters are long or the desert's dry, they also, when plants are available, they will take on plants, which will change their microbiome, of, of course. course. Mm. And if we have a look at um, our explorers in Australia, Burke and Wills, let's say, because I've just finished reading The Dig Tree for the second time, I just love that book. And, and it's all about how they survived. Um, through the desert region, they lived on meat, meat and fish, because there wasn't a lot of plant life. Although the Australian Aboriginal people did show them um, how to use nardu. Um, now, this is really, really, really important. So they showed them how to use it. They, they grind it. They wash it. Um, they soak it overnight and then they cook it in the morning. But the explorers didn't do that preparation. And as a result, um, they passed away from eating nardu because nardu has... Uh, thiaminase in it which interacts with thiamine and they basically were already spent with you know doing everything that they did and then they became very sick by eating the nadu they just lost all their b vitamins they went you know they had beriberi and all sorts of issues so when we we look at you know extremes like that we understand that humans can survive on meat alone they can be carnivores but when plants were available, they would eat plants because I do not believe that as humans we can survive solely on, on meat products the whole of our lives, be fertile, create another generation, um, grow to a ripe old age. That's, you know, and that's my belief because of anthropological principles, nothing else. Um, is there evidence of this? 
in the scientific literature, I guess I've not looked at it because what I do always is I always look back in history and I go, well, who survived? How did they survive in extreme conditions? Um, because that's when we know, like we don't live in extreme conditions. We have a grocery store that's open 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. We don't live in the cycles of nature anymore. We don't have times of plenty and then times of famine, which to me were very important um, in, in our biochemistry and our health. And I try to fake that. Every year I try to have my summers of plenty and my winters of less. And by doing that, um, I'm trying to live the way humans would have lived and the way our um, anthropological bodies evolved and survived through the, you know, through the ages. So the carnivore diet as the vegan diet are two extremes in, in dietary protocols. Both cannot, I don't think either you can survive on for more than, well, they, you know, they reckon the vegan diet about six years. And as far as the carnivore diet, I'm waiting to see how long before people start to go, ooh, I'm not feeling too good. So I'll let them experiment and then I'll watch and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I think, that, you know, of course you can feel amazing initially, but what we've got to start to look at is what the long-term impact of such an extreme approach is, which hasn't seemed to be part of the current conversation in the carnivore space. Everyone's very focused on how great they're feel, feeling and their brain fog that's removed and their autoimmune disease that's in remission. And I'm not saying that this isn't great, that these people are feeling healthier, but we can't lose sight of the forest for the trees when we have to look at what we're doing now for our health in the future. And just going back to something that you said before, like I love that concept of less in the winter and more in the summer. But like most things, we've got it back to front in the West. In winter, we all eat for Australia and put on weight um, and then expect our bodies to, you know, be ready to put our bathers on when the weather warms up. And so, uh, you know, that, that anthropological view is so important to understand how we were healthy before the West got things upside down and back to front. And you know that what you talked about with um, the carnival diet, you know, they say their brains have clicked in. Mm. So, you know, like I've been, um, I'm, I'm running a book at the moment and, um, and I've been doing a lot of research on uh, ketosis. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I came across, and I can't remember who said it, but I had to listen to it and read it quite a few times. He said that, And this makes so much sense when you look at anthropological principles. So our brain clicks in. We become adventurous. We want to move. We want to, um, it's a time of um, survival even because we're out there moving. We're being adventurous. We're seeing things. And think about this. Animals put us into ketosis. Animal fats, um, animal produce. Yes, you can do it with plants, but for for the anthropological principles, that would put us into ketosis. Animals move. If we don't want to move and we're not adventurous, as humans, we would have died. We had to chase those animals. We had to move with them as they moved and they migrated. We had to migrate with them in order to survive. On the other hand, plants we, is our glucose. It's our carbohydrates. It's what, for the most part, it's what um, puts, like calms our brain down, puts us into... Uh, a state of 
oh, I'm quite happy here. I don't really want to move. And plants don't move either. But in the summer, plants give you, like my dad's orange tree, I look at it. It's been growing for years. You cannot eat the oranges from that orange tree. There are so many of them. And then now they're producing more for the next winter. Um, and, and you think about it, plants don't move. We sit there and we eat plant foods. We're carbohydrates. We're happy in that. We don't, we're not adventurous. We're quite happy to do that. So when we start to look at, yes, my brain's clicked in, I don't know about your brain being like that, not being content and happy in one place is a good thing. So not only am I looking at the physical stage of the body and the immune system and everything like that, but I'm also looking at what it's doing to the brain and what, it want, what the brain wants you to do in order um, to survive. Because remember, humans, it was all about survival eating. It was about adapting and survival. So, yeah, I, look, I just, I'm looking forward to seeing the long term with these carnivores because I love Lyra Keith. Um, I don't know if you follow her, but she was in Pete Evans' Magic Pill and that's when I first um, heard about her. And once I saw her in the, in the Magic Pill, I just looked her up and, and read her books and listened to all of her interviews and podcasts that she'd done. And she was a strict vegan for 20 years and had severe health problems. But she realises it was about the sixth year that those problems started to happen, but she ignored them and started to eat meat again. And now I'm just waiting for those carnivores to go for 6, 10, 20 years and to see um, them come out of the woodwork and see, you know, what they're going to say. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fascinating area and um, very, very new, obviously, in the health space, this conversation, or at least, again, <laughs> that we're having this conversation for who knows what number of times. But um, I think it's really important that we break it down a little bit more because it's something that you mentioned earlier about the NADU and how the Australian Aboriginals used to um, cook their food. And we know that the cooking process can be what obviously destroys a lot of these so-called toxic compounds. So we've got to keep that perspective in that even the plants that you and I eat, there's not too many that we eat raw. There are a lot that we cook for that reason. But, you know, it's always about the dose and the health of the individual. You know, I always think about the fact that water can be poisonous in too much of a volume. You know, you can die from drinking too much water. And so what we haven't been able to do in the carnivore space or those that are proponents, I don't think what they've been able to do is understand that while plants have that sort of so-called poisonous component, it's the dose and the health of the animal, the person eating them, that makes it actually the poison. So, you know, I think we've lost perspective of that in that we cook a lot of vegetables for a reason um, and also the volume that we're eating is not really an issue unless, of course, there's a much deeper underlying health issue. Agreed. Agreed. We, we could take red kidney beans. Mm. So I don't know if anybody's noticed, but there is no red kidney kidney bean power, um, flour out there. No, there's not. No, because five red kidney beans raw has the ability to kill. They're toxic. You have to soak them. You have to, um, you know, cook them. You can, and you have to boil them for 10 minutes. This is what people don't realise. And the Indians who were vegetarians on the equator, 
realized that spices also help them digest. So the Ayurvedic medicine, um, you know, came about because spices and herbs were very important for the digestion of these foods. The same goes with, there were so many foods, like look at all of our grains. We, we seem to be eating more and more raw as opposed to cooked. But many of our grains were made into a cruel or a porridge. The Australian Aboriginal people um, not only did Nadu like that, but they did lots of foods where they knew how to prepare them so that the anti-nutrients, and gluten is an anti-nutrient, and as is lectins, um, as is, you know, can be lignans, depending on your microbiome, depending on how you prepare the food, how much you eat, as you said. One of the things that the Australian Aboriginal people did eat is warrigal greens. And warrigal greens, you can find them, like I go swimming every day and they're on my beach. You can find them all over Australia around, um, they're, they're salty and thick around the coastline. And as you go inland, they become more like a spinach leaf. But they must have known that if they didn't prepare them properly, um, that they would cause problems. And, and we now know that they're very high in oxalates. So just a quick bit of hot water on them or boiling water on them will take those oxalates out. If they were going to um, eat any greens raw, um, and they would have, they would have understood what they could use. And that's not just the Australian Aboriginal people, but that's natives all over the world that, um, you know, live the hunter-gatherer lifestyle or even the agricultural lifestyle. There was soil-based bacterias on that lettuce. And today I see pro- people with problems with lettuce because what they're doing to lettuce now in those plastic bags, whether it's organic or not organic, is that they sanitise them and get rid of all of those beautiful soil-based bacterias that were part of you being able to digest that lettuce. So we're beginning to understand the importance of microbes, not only internally, but on our foods. And at the moment, there's such issues with, um, you know, microbes that are um, pathological soil-based bacteria um, that people are, uh, have on lettuces or on any of cucumber. We've seen them on cucumbers. We've seen them on cantaloupe or rock melon. And now what they're doing is that in a processing plant, they will sanitise our foods. So there's no more bacteria on our foods if you buy them in the grocery store because we're, they're so scared about a listeria outbreak or... Um, an, an outbreak that we now realise um, is a pathological soil bacteria that lives when you um, spray um, glyphosate on it. So this, this is where it all comes back to our agriculture. Doesn't and it comes back to, mm. it does, it really comes back to it because what we know about glyphosate is that when, which is Roundup, which is 596 um, registered products here in Australia, all under another name, but their main component is glyphosate. When we spray glyphosate on our weeds or on our crops, which they do, they spray it on wheat and barley and legumes and lentils and chickpeas. So when it's sprayed on there just before harvest, not only is it affecting the plant and having glyphosate in the plant, um, and that's the seed and the grain that we eat, 
But when it gets into the soil, it's killing off all the beneficial bacteria and leaving the pathological bacteria. And in actual fact, the way glyphosate works is, is actually it makes the plant vulnerable to pathological bacteria coming up into it to kill it off. So no wonder we've got listeria and all of these outbreaks of um, pathological soil bacteria in our foods that is causing gastrointestinal problems and death. Um, so to me, it's like we've just created this knock-on effect and, and the way to get out of that is to start growing your own food or know the farmer who's growing your food. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really fascinating when we dive in deeper to what's going on with glyphosate. And I love that angle around considering what it's actually doing to the beneficial microbes. Um, and I, I expect or suspect we're going to learn a lot more. I mean, the first glyphosate court case was confirmed only in June this year in Australia. And, um, you know, that's not going to be the, the last, unfortunately. The damaging effects of that constant exposure is obviously um, well discussed now, but for all of us, we really have to take our health into our own hands and, and understand what our modern-day sort of farming is doing to both our microbiome and our immune system. Yeah, definitely. Um it's 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 that I think is the the, the root cause. Mm. But, but then you know, like, oh, there's so many people that I interview and listen to and read, and um, you know, one person says it's aluminium, another person says it's EMFs, another person says it's mold, another person says it's this. And look, it could be a combination of all of these things, and so we need to look at them all. But if we if we start with diet, it's a really good place to start, and if we start clean and we become activists in the way we consume our food, um, then they will stop spraying those. And in Australia, I do believe there's around 150, I might be wrong here because it could have gone up, of people that are now um, in a litigation case against Monsanto. And I was listening to Robert Kennedy recently, and there are now 50,000 plaintiffs in the US waiting for wow. their time in court with non wow. employment. Yeah. 50,000, my goodness, 50, against yeah, Bayer. Against Bayer, yeah, or who, who bought Monsanto. Mm. So, you know, in the, in, they've had four go through the courts um, and, you know, the initial cost to Bayer was over $2 billion in um, punitive damages, which means that they've been lying to us. They've, they have no conscience. They, you know, basically the, the, the plaintiffs were given... I think it was like five or ten million. I can't remember, but they were given impunitive damages, billions, mm -hmm. because Monsanto um, had lied about the effects of glyphosate, and and they had no, you know, they had no conscience about it either. And that's that's where the damages are, and that's where the costs are coming. So you have fifty thousand people sitting there um, waiting um, in the courts. Um, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see what happens to Bayer. I'm sure they're not very happy that they bought Monsanto now. I was just thinking the same thing. My goodness, their timing was terrible, wasn't it? The, the, cost, the ongoing cost of all litigation is going to be astronomical. It's interesting because um, Dr. Zach Bush, who's a, a medical doctor in Virginia, who's very much about let's get back into the garden and back into the kitchen, you know, and, and let's start 
um, knowing where our food is coming from and having food security. He believes that um, when Bayern knew that this was going to happen, I don't know if on such an astronomical scale, but that they knew that it was going to happen. And he believed that um, Monsanto was worth around $200 billion, I think he said, and Bayer bought it for $63 billion knowing. You can't even fathom billions, but, yeah. um, but knowing that these court cases were going to come. So they've got about $140 billion spare um, <laughs> for this, these court cases, and they will probably do a, a class action, I'd say, um, and figure out how much they can pay everybody and, and then do it. Uh, look, I, look I, that's just me listening to people. I have no idea. I'm not a lawyer. Um, I just listen to Robert Kennedy uh, and, and what he's doing because he's, he's basically part of the, the law um, firm that is um, suing Bayer as well as Merck because um, of what Merck's doing, another drug company. So we will wait and see, won't we, Steph? We will. But I'm just really interested because like, the cases are obviously quite focused around the plaintiffs as they should be and, and proving whether the product had caused the cancer. Um, but what... Have you got any thoughts around the um, ongoing use of glyphosate and what that what that's going to look like worldwide? Well, I believe that Bayer will come in as the hero, um, and 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 this is like I said, listening to other people. It's not my belief. I shouldn't say that, but um, it's been said that Bayer will come in as the hero. They'll stop um, glyphosate, but they've got another um, one. Um, ready to go, another herbicide ready to go. And they're actually um, produced, Monsanto has produced um, not only Roundup ready GM crops, but they now have dicamba ready and 2,4-D ready um, crops. So I think what will happen is that they'll just phase it into dicamba and 2,4-D, which we're, we're no better off. We're absolutely no better off. So that's why I say this is about food security. By the way, the next... Um, the next plaintiff that's coming through in January um, is a 13-year-old girl. So everybody else has been either doused in Roundup. So the first one was Dwayne Johnston. He was doused in Roundup because his hose broke. He was a gardener in a um, or a groundsman in a, mm. um, uh, I think he was in a school. So his hose pipe broke and he was doused in it and started to get this really bad rash and then got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But the um, Hooktons or something, I think that's their name, they um, were a couple that used Roundup, you know, on their garden for 30 years. So just small amounts. And I think the second plaintiff was a farmer. So here in Australia we've got farmers and groundsmen, but the fact that a 13-year-old with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, is, is the, four, the fifth plaintiff in the US means that, you know, it may not be long-term use. It may be that we're consuming it um, and, and it's being sprayed everywhere. You know, my beach was sprayed with it in July where I go swimming every single day. I watched it die. Mm. I watched my beach die, my, like my dunes die, and I'm like going, what's happening there? And I finally rang the council and just said, can you please tell me what you sprayed on the dunes? And they said, glyphosate. And I said to the lady when she rang me back, I said to her, you could, you, you could have picked them out. It's not that big a dune. You could have picked them out. And she said, oh, well, glyphosate's a contact um, herbicide. And I said, no, it's not. It's biochemical warfare. It is not that. Anyway, they're, they're naive. They don't know. They just think that they know. 
Because I said to them, we could have used a contact herbicide. There's lots of them out there, such as salt and water, <laughs> such as vinegar. Um, but no, she felt that um, it was. Well, so they don't even know the mechanism. That's what it is, though. A lot of it is that we've just been sheep for our whole lives, not asking for more information. And Roundup has like little to zero um, safety information, no precautions even about wearing sort of gloves or masks, like nothing about the dangers on the packet. So I think for so long we've just believed it to be fine. Yeah. Until now when it's too late for a lot of these people. And that's just tragic that it's a 13-year-old because, yeah, obviously she hasn't been around as long as some of these um, farmers or groundsmen and it's not direct exposure as in via her work all day, every day. It's coming from the food or, you know, the environment that she's living in. That's yeah. really scary. Yeah, I'm interested. I'll, I'll look forward to watching that case and, and just seeing her whole story. Um, but it, to me, it's a wake-up call to all of us. And I'm a person who um, I have my own property now because I want food security. But you can do it in your backyard. You do not need a lot of land mm. to produce a lot of food. So February this year, and I may have already said this to you, Steph, but February this year my son and I went and bought $75 worth of yeah. seedlings from our local organic store. We are still, we can't keep up with the amount of food that is being produced. It's mm. It's incredible. And that was February. And we're now in, no, you know, getting into November. And the kale, I'm going to have to start selling it because. Oh, yum. I'll have some. I just, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't keep up with it. My lettuces, my, all my herbs, we've got sweet potato going nuts. Um, it was so funny because uh, I usually take all my food scraps up to the farm for the chickens or for my compost heap. And I was going away and I decided, oh, I, I can't get them up to the farm, so I'll. I'll just throw them in my garden. I dug a hole in my garden and I went away for, I think we were away two to three weeks. I came home and I had pumpkin and I had tomatoes. <laughs> and my daughter said to me this morning, she goes, we really need to throw a papaya um, in there, mum, so we get a papaya tree. And I went, yep, yeah, okay, let's do that. So that's how easy it is. The, the ground, if, you, if you've got good soil and you just throw it in there, it will just do these crazy things and grow you food. <laughs> That's exactly right. And we, you know, I love the conversation that you and I had earlier this year about how you can do it in your own space, whether you've got property or not. So I'll definitely link to the show notes regarding that episode. What I wanted to touch on or get you to sort of repeat from a previous episode is what we can do locally. I know you're like a massive campaigner and I really admire you for the conversations you've had in your local community around glyphosate and, 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 and more than that, but what can we do ourselves to make a change in our local area? Uh, well. <laughs> like is it writing to the council? Is it, you know, you know what can we really do to, to influence yeah, the yeah. Well, it's really interesting, and i got to tell you this because this has only just happened. Um, so when my beach started to die. And when I found out that it was glyphosate, I went down to the beach and I took photos of what it looked like. And I put it on my Instagram September 12th um, this year. And um, I wrote all about it and, um, and how mad I was because I'd been, you know, bugging the council um, for probably three or four years now. So I, I was lucky to become Sustainable Businesswoman of the Year here on the Sunshine Coast. And my sponsor was the council. Um, and so my acceptance speech was basically, um, I will help them stop using glyphosate, and which 
is what I wanted to do. And I've sent them all the information on it. And so I wrote about this on my Instagram and my, I was up with a girlfriend, she turned 60 and we we're up having a party and I get a, a message from my son and he said, mum, you're in the paper today, Saturday <laughs> paper in the opinion piece, double page spread. And what they'd done is they'd taken my Instagram information and done this huge double page spread on the council spraying glyphosate and how I had told them, um, you know, years ago and why are they not changing? And it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So, you know, you don't know your effect unless you start to speak out. If you don't want to speak out, you can do your activism in a more subtle way and that is by the food that you consume and the food that you buy. You can do it by going to your local farmer's market, talking to your farmer, finding out how they grow their food, understanding if it's chemical-free or, or spray-free or organic, if it's not certified organic. So my farm is not certified organic. But I've had people say to me, I'd rather buy from you, Cindy, than a certified organic because I know your principles. I know you're about regenerative farming. I know your take on things. So there are other farmers, lots of farmers like me. They're, they're not certified organic, but they're regenerative farmers. They care about their land. They care about their food. They, they care more about their soil. And when you care about your soil, then, you know, the land um, will be bountiful in its plants and animals that it grows for you. So um, you can become an activist in a very quiet way um, without even saying a word, but just by your actions. And that's where I get people to start. If they want to really, you know, talk to their council, then I've done um, a letter for them. I've done a letter for the APBMA. And, and what you basically do is you just go on to changinghabits.com.au or even plug in activism, changing habits or Cindy O'Meara on your Google search. And it will go straight to the article about being an activist. So if you want to do more than just consuming good quality foods in everything you consume, not just your fruits and vegetables, meats and dairies, but your nuts and seeds and your herbs and spices. So if you want to go beyond that, there's two links there. One's for your council and one is for the Australian Pesticide and Veterinary Medical Medical Medicine um, uh, Authority. And these are the guys that register glyphosate and register all the chemicals that are allowed to be used in Australia. Um, as well as veterinary medicines. So there are two letters for them. Now, APVMA will come back with a standard letter that says we've reviewed all the science um, and um, when more information comes to light, we will review our registrations. But until then, um, we're leaving them as they are. And the councils will come back and they'll say, we are directed by APVMA. <laughs> so but at least you're getting your information out there. Believe me, I know that this is what happens because everybody sends me, this is what my council said. I said, it doesn't matter. Just as many people as that can do this um, and, you know, the better it will be. And I do know that the council's running scared because I um, spoke to somebody who is the cousin of a constitutional lawyer um, in Brisbane that keeps hearing from councils going, can we be sued um, over damages by continuing to spray this chemical? Um, so I do know that they are thinking 
and they are being alerted. It's just like um, DDT. You know, DDT in the 60s, there was a book that came out called Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, and she was talking about the dangers of DDT. It was 1974 before DDT was banned in food production um, and for mosquito control and for nits in hair and things like that. So it took 15 years after her book or 14 years after her book. Um, And as far as I know, people have been talking about Roundup and glyphosate for a decade now. So I'm hoping we're only five years away. I don't know. (laughs) Good. You know, but if we can do things as individuals, we, we cannot buy it. We don't buy foods that are sprayed with it. We become educated. We we peeve our council off. We take photos. We we shame them. We do as much as we can so that they stop it ASAP. I love that. So I'll put some of those links that you mentioned in the show notes for those that want to do a little bit more. But of course, we all can do something. So I love that you've brought it back to those really quite basic steps. And you know, I often say that health starts in learning how to cook, but you've made me realize that it's, it's way beyond that. I actually think that health starts with learning how to grow your own garden. So you're definitely a huge inspiration there. And yeah, I can't wait to see the flow on effect of all of the action that you've been creating. So well done. Yeah. Well, we believe it too. And like, you know, I've been a nutritionist for 40 years. I'm, you know, like I'm just about to go. I started at my university in 1980 and that's, was my love of nutrition from then. So I'm really at four decades of studying nutrition and being a nutritionist. And, you know, back then it wasn't as, it wasn't as bad as it is today. You know, the microbiome wasn't even spoken about because we weren't destroying it back then. But as, you know, the decades have progressed and um, I'm learning more it's not about just being in the kitchen. It's about getting back into the garden to provide food for the kitchen, to feed and nourish our family, to heal this nation. And we we do have to take that extra step. And with our, um, you know, I have an education arm for changing habits and it's called the Nutrition Academy. And by the end of the year, we will have a a nutrient-dense food production course um, done by the beautiful Murad Gamble, who's an incredible garden expert on permaculture and yeah she's just so she's creating the course for us it's just like dr stephen myers created the nutrition course with me Murag gamble um will be um doing the course in um nutrient dense food production so how to start a garden in your backyard easy simply or even in pots if you you live in a place where you do not have any um land so, and you can go to community gardens. So there, it, there's no excuse. There really isn't any excuse. So um, I'm looking forward to that um, food production course to start because I think that more and more people are realising that food security is not there anymore. Yes, there's plenty of food. Uh, I was listening to, oh, what's the name of the author of Sapiens? Hussain, Hussain, I think his last name is. Um, and he basically said in the world today, more people die of overeating than undereating. Yeah, wow. But more people are dying of um, poor food security as far as the quality of their food than those that are dying from, you know, the, uh, like the op- opposing effect of that. 
So I think it's about our food security that we start creating a garden. And it's, it's amazing, like I said, what you can grow. I can't wait for that course. Um, I'd actually love to hear more about the Nutrition Academy because you're such a wealth of knowledge and I know there are so many people, like I get asked every week, if not every day, around um, where they can learn more about real food and, of course, you know, functional nutrition. So, yeah, let's dive into that a little bit more and um, tell me, I'm sure that's the reason why you first started the Nutrition Academy. You got asked so many times. <laughs> exactly, Steph. Yeah. You know, I want to do what you do, Cindy. I want to learn mm. what you know. You know, I said, read my book. You know, that does it. But I realised there was so much before the book um, and the understanding before the book. And we've already spoken about two of the principles of the course and they are the first two modules of the course and that's, Number one, anthropological principles. So historical eating. How did we eat? How did the dietary guidelines come about? What, what you know, because that's fascinating in itself. But, but going right back and looking at hunter-gatherers and agriculturalists and herders and what was the quality of our food and how did we eat and how did we survive to this point in time without chronic disease? So that's, um, you know, that's, the first thing that you learn about in the Nutrition Academy. The second thing that you learn about is the philosophy of vitalism as opposed to mechanism, which we spoke about in the beginning. So vitalism is looking at a food for its holistic approach. So not looking at butter because it's 50% saturated fat, but realising that there are omega-3s in there, there's butyric acid in there, there's all these amazing fats in there as opposed to just saturated fat. But I never thought saturated fat was bad because saturated fat is an old food it's a food that we've consumed like breast milk is filled with saturated fat mm. so it's a, a food that we have um, eaten for a long time so knowing vitalistic principles like with the when we talked about the lignans and the lectins and the glutens understanding them in a food how to um, deactivate these anti-nutrients and to be able to eat them safely and then understanding, you know, and that's all part of cultures and tradition, which is anthropological principles. Then knowing these two things, you then can move on and understand how we have made such a huge mistake with diet, with, um, you know, macronutrients, which is our carbohydrates, fats and proteins. And then we go through those. We start to talk about macronutrients. We talk about myths such as the salt myth. And even now the sugar myth, you know, this, this whole thing in the carnivore diet is that they don't want you eating carbs, number one, and then what they believe are anti-nutrients, number two. But there was a reason for carbohydrates in our diet. And they, for women, it was fertility. We needed fat on us in order to produce leptin, L-E-P-T-I-N, mm. which then signaled to the hormones, yippee, we've got fat on us we can survive the winter, have a baby now. So remember, it's nine months um, that we gestated for, so we would put that weight on in the summer. And this is what you learn. You learn the natural cycles of life, the understanding of food, the, and understanding those two major principles then carry you through the rest of the course. And so the course has 12 modules um, and it goes over a 12-month period um, and you, you come out and you're able to help, you know, people change their, 
way of eating. You're not necessarily dietitians in any way, but what you are is that you become someone who's become wise. And it was the wisdom of women and gathering and the wisdom of men in hunting and the way we prepared things that enabled us to survive thousands of generations without chronic disease. And now we've understood about infectious disease. We understand sanitation. But now we've gone to the other extreme where we have chronic disease. So infection is acute usually and chronic is, you know, the food that we're consuming, the lifestyle that we live that leads us to autoimmunity, diabetes, heart disease, cancers, um, and all everything that is um, mounting on us at the moment. Like you, you look at the statistics. In 1960, 2% of the population, I think it was 2 to 4% of the population had a chronic disease across the board, yeah. even to the elderly. Now between 38 and 40% of our children have one or more chronic diseases under the age of 17. And if you make it to 65, 80% of the 65 upward have a chronic disease. One, two, three, four or five, you know, and upward. So this is a course that empowers you to get your own health going and understand, you know, because there's so many things out there that we, we go, well, is it mould or is it aluminium or is it, you know, vaccines or is it supplements or is it medication or is it cholesterol or is it saturated fat or is it glyphosate? Is it refined foods? Is it legohemoglobin? You know, there are so many things out there that everybody's focusing on. But what this does is just takes it back to the basics. Well, how do I decipher what's um, a good, uh, you know, discovery? Um, this, this, um, the, the gentleman who did Sapiens, he said, science is about profit, not about truth. He said, individual scientists are about truth, but corporations are about profit. He says, beware of science. He even, he believes science is the way forward, but he says, be very careful when science is, is manipulated by corporations. Do you believe? Absolutely. Which is why the, the whole, you know, where is the research argument can be quite flawed because we forget about who's funding the study and the quality of the research and, and so much more. So you know, I know that you've definitely unpacked that for us in this beautiful course. And the, and the focus that, you know, people, like I just um, interviewed um, Dr. Christopher Exley. He's incredible. He's a, a UK scientist that has been studying aluminium in living systems for 35 years. And 10 years ago, he started to work on the brains of children with autism as well as the brains of um, people with uh, early onset Alzheimer's as well as um, late onset Alzheimer's. And, you know, his focus is aluminium. He calls it the aluminium age. But it's not the only thing. And, but it's good to see his perspective. But what's happened to him is he's a truth seeker. He's an incredible truth seeker. And last year, he actually uh, um, put out an article, and people can look it up, um, a published article, and it was on um, adjuvants in vaccines, how they get into the brain and what they're doing to the brain. And can you imagine what happened to him after 35 years of being a, a scientist that nobody knew anything about? Mm -hmm. He became public enemy number one. 
Yeah. Yeah. So nobody said anything about Christopher Exley until this article came out. And then he became public enemy number one because corporations that are making a lot of money um, and to change their adjuvant, um, which is the thing that increases the immune system, you have to have it in there for vaccinations. Um, to question that adjuvant means that every single one of these big companies that produce these vaccines have to find another adjuvant. Mm. And um, he's created a storm. Whether people want to know it or not, he's created the storm and it's worth reading his research. Interesting. Okay. I'll have a look at that for sure. So this is when truth gets in the way of profit. Mm. You know, and, and, you know, if we are going to continue the vaccination program, we want to know that, that the adjuvants are safe and that they're not causing a problem. So, and that's what he's all about. But, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, he's, it's, a, it's interesting what's happening in that space at the moment, I must admit. It is. Yeah, another one of those stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> and then I, I also know that you've got a microbiome course at the Nutrition Academy. So just tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, it, like, because the microbiome, we, it is such a fluid uh, part of of the human body you know microbes for so long were wanting to be we wanted to destroy them you know everybody wanted to have the antibacterial but now we're realizing the importance of the microbiome and we started this whole conversation on lignans and how the microbiome converts those lignans into um, enterolactin and enterodiol which are important for um, pulling out estrogen out of the system and clearing estrogen out of the system and could have relevance with you know breast cancer or prevention of breast cancer so we this is just one micro thing that they do so we could talk about how the immune system is affected by it how it produces our b vitamins our vitamin k um, how it produces butyric acid which helps with the integrity of the microbiome lining how it produces our precursors for our neurotransmitters so like I'm just throwing stuff at you at the importance of the microbiome. So we've done a, a course um, for the microbiome to upskill people with regards to the basics of eurocrats and um, prokaryotes, prokaryotes and all of the basics of the firmicutes and the bacteroides and then all of these things that are important to understanding the microbiome because we can tell you what the microbiome is doing but understanding how it works and and what these um, what these micro, what the microbiome is made up of or the microbiota so you do that after you've done the course it's a um, postgraduate um, course and we're bringing out more and more postgraduate courses um, you know as as we're able to and as we understand them more so, yes, the microbiome course is, it can, you know, if you have a science degree and you're a dietitian or a nutritionist and you want to do it, you can do it. But for people that do not have that, we like them to do the whole course for, first before they do the microbiome course. And, um, yeah, it's, it just gives you an understanding of the importance of those microbes in us as humans and as well as animals and as well as the soil which you'll learn more about when you do the nutrient-dense food production. 
So beautiful. I love it. I really think it's such a great resource. And, you know, we'll just unpack all those questions and concerns and, and bust all the myths that we're exposed to in, in the food space. And, um, you know, you're just such a wealth of knowledge. I really thoroughly enjoy our conversations and I'm just so grateful um, for your time today, Cindy. Oh, look, thank you. I, I always enjoy our conversations and I always enjoy when we get together. And um, Because, uh, you know, both of us, um, have so much knowledge about nutrition because we, we've got decades between us. <laughs> and sometimes you'll bring up something and I'll think, oh, I need to go look that up and understand more about that one, you know. So I love that, that we both can bounce off each other. And, and, and having peers that are thinking on the same lines but may have um, detail in, it, in a space that I don't have detail in, I absolutely love. I learn more from my peers than... And, and I learn from, from people who are going through the issues um, themselves, you know, they've got some disease and then they tell me about it and how they've dealt with it and how, what's helped them. And so we, you just have to be open, I think, in this day and age as to um, how we can be helped. And I think that we have to understand the stacking of habits and um, how each habit that you change stacks against the next one that then eventually gets to where you turn, do that turning point um, to your health. And a lot of people don't realise like that. Like I hear people go, oh, I've done the GAPS program and I've done this and I've done that, but it was this that changed my life and it might have been some water product. And I go, but what about everything else that you did? And maybe that was the last thing. And what if you didn't do all those things in between? Would that have, would that have been the thing? So I want people to realise that, it's not one thing. It's many things that we do that stack against each other or with each other in order for us to find out our, our beautiful vitality and health. That is an incredible summary. I could not agree more. I think we, we just, again, get way too insular. So we've got to make sure we can see the forest and the trees and also understand behavioural change. And so, you know, we obviously speak to a lot of different people on the show of different levels of experience and time following a real food approach. And there might have been some things today that aren't quite, you know, meeting you where you're at. So, you know, take what you can and, and just get started, but understand that you can add on day by day, month by month. And, you know, there's no expectation from either of us that you that you do everything overnight. In fact, I advise against that quite strongly. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's because it's overwhelming. Mm. I read an article, Stephia, recently. Um, it's probably in the last month and it's been really annoying me ever since I read it. And it was about Nathan Pritikin. It was about Dorothy Hall. Um, it was about all of these people that, you know, were in my era that were now dead. So they were older than me when I was coming up through the ranks and I learned from them. And this person, and I can't remember who it was, and I must go and look it up, was scathing of these beautiful people that had information to give about diet and food. And I think about them and I think would they, if they didn't change their diet, would they have survived as long as they did? Perhaps they had underlying issues. Perhaps there were other things they needed to look at. And I do this because of my mother. You know, my mother died of lung cancer at 69. She was energetic. She was, she could run rings around my children when they were babies. 
she was incredible and she ate well, she exercised, she did what most people would think would have led her to longevity. But there are other things called an exposome, which is what happened to you growing up and what happened to you in the womb that exposed you to certain things that set you on a trajectory that would have shortened your life anyway. So I think when we look at our health, we must look at everything. And nutrition to me is a really good place to start. But don't stop there. Once you've mastered that, look at what sunlight and the importance of sunlight and the importance of circadian rhythms and the importance of sleep and the importance of our attitude in life. So, and, and don't be scathing of anybody that goes, oh, well, they had a good diet. Look at them. They're dead. And he's smoked his whole life and he's still alive at 98. You know, I, I, you don't, I don't think people understand that there are other things at play here. So, yeah. I'm going to write an article on it, I think, because I was really upset by it. I just thought, you can't be mean to these people. You know, you, there are other things that you don't know, other factors. It could be genetic predispositions, chemical exposure. You know, so much. Anything. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big picture. And so that's why we have to take that holistic approach. And I look forward to your article because I couldn't agree more. Thank you, my dear. So good to chat. Look forward to catching up again very soon. Um, and, yeah, I'll pop all the links in the show notes and those that want to jump online um, straight away, go and check out the Nutrition Academy by Changing Habits. Thank you, Steph. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.